We continue now in the book of Titus. If you please turn to the Titus and the last chapter, chapter 3, and then turn and there. Please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. I'm going to be reading verse 1 down through verse verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Uh, the contrast. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for God's people, for avoid, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to prayer. Please pray for me as I preach this text. And for yourselves, that God would bring it uh, to the the efficacy for our souls. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, it is uh, a moment of resting by uh, the quiet lake and being in peace as we come together to worship you. And all the things that we deal with throughout the days of the week, things that call us aside, we pray, our God, that you would cause those things and the concerns of life to be far from us. As we come now to hear your word preached, I ask for your grace in my life to preach it with unction and authority and power of your spirit. Be with your people, O God, that they would not be sleepy. We tell you that you would be with them and help them to be alert and pay attention. And also pray that you would apply your word to us. For we know that unless the Lord blesses those who labor, labor in vain. So bring your word to bear upon us, O God, our Father. We pray if any here who are doubtful, that you would take that doubt away. Any here who are fearful, take that fear away. As we rejoice, O God, in the great gifts and blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Do you have a daily goal? Something that uh, you're concerned about daily to see that it is accomplished. Uh, For example, you have uh, three or four men in prison in Huntsville. And their goal is to escape. And so they're consumed with that. They wake up, they think about it throughout the day, they think about it. When they go to bed at night, they think about it as well. 
It is an obsession. Or consider the one who is sick with a chronic illness. Their goal each day is to be free from pain, to try to see how they can make themselves better. If they've been given a certain word, the doctor says there is no hope for you, but they would continue to look and to search and to seek if there's something perhaps that can be done to give them relief from their sufferings. Well, in the text this morning, we see that Christians have an obsession. I should have an obsession as well. And so you've got the prisoners that have an obsession to get out. You have the sick person who has an obsession to feel better. Well, as believers, we have and should have an obsession. Paul here in these verses gives information to Titus to instruct him in the ways and the means of sanctification, in the ways and means of conducting themselves in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our faith should have and hold dominion in our lives, that when you wake up in the morning, you recognize, I am a servant of Christ. Throughout the day, I am a servant of Christ. In the evening, I am a servant of Christ. That's who I am. That's how I identify myself. And so that through the days of the week, those things that occupy us so and, and, and call us uh, away from, at times, our obligations as servants of Christ. Uh, the world of finance, and it comes in session to make money and more and more and more money. Uh, and uh, the world of, um, of uh, going to school and, and the, uh, the things that come upon us there. And all of these different things that would in some way or another trap us to be consumed with the cares of the world. Well, we have indeed those uh, urges, uh, those uh, annoyances, if you will, that would call us away uh, from being faithful to Christ. Indeed, Jesus in the week may even become an afterthought. Well, here in Paul's instructions to Titus, we learn this, that the gospel of Christ is to be taught faithfully because the gospel properly taught and received molds the behavior in the ways, in our way, in the ways of pleasing God. That word of God taught, the word of God embraced, the word of God received, instructs us as his people how to live our lives in such a way that they are pleasing to the Lord. Three things this morning. The gospel of Christ is reliable. The gospel of Christ is practical. And the gospel of Christ is beneficial. Now, owing to time, we are not going to deal with any but the first one. We'll come back next week. And deal with the last two. But the gospel of Christ is reliable. Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy. In this verse 8, he puts that in here as he is addressing Timothy. Uh, and the saying is trustworthy. Well, what is he talking about? What does Paul mean when he says it is trustworthy? For one thing, it emphasizes the importance of the gospel. It also uh, teaches us uh, that the Word of God is to be uppermost in our commitment to hearing it and to living by it. The saying is trustworthy. This is an epistle, a letter that Paul wrote to Titus. Uh, in this letter, uh, he is recognizing and encouraging uh, Timothy to leave soon because he needs his help. So Timothy is to train elders 
to have those elders in place to take up the ministry of the word of God among the people that are in Crete. And as he leaves there, he would have Titus to be instructed in the ways he is to teach the people, in the ways that he is to leave the people. And so the trustworthy saying that Paul talks about here, you know what it appears in the verses that are up above in 4 through 7. For we ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice. Here is the description of the one who is outside of Christ. And so that our passions and our goals and our main interest is not God at all. It's not the things of God. It's the things of the world. And how we can advance ourselves in the world, or at least in the world, have as much pleasure as we possibly can. And he goes on to say this great announcement of God's goodness and loving kindness is through his grace that we are redeemed, through his working that we are saved, through his kindness that we are bound for glory. He writes all that in this to uh, Timothy and that, I mean, to Titus. And it is here, he says, we are justified by grace in the hope of eternal life. That's the gospel that we were without Christ, without hope in the world. We were bound for hell. But God in his great grace had mercy upon us. And God in his great, great grace provided us with a Savior, His own Son, to die for us on the cross of Calvary to be raised for our justification, as it says in the book of Romans. All of this owing to God's love for us. At the end of it all, he says, the hope of eternal life. And so this means, then, does it not, that we should have no cause to be afraid of dying? I liked when Sproul sent that letter out. He knew he was going to die, and he sent a letter out to, uh, I guess, people that supported his ministry. And one of the lines he put in there was this, If I'm afraid, please pray for me. There was a man named Sam Patterson. I told Ronnie this the other day. and He was uh, involved at RTS in Jackson. He was a very, very godly man, and yet uh, he did not want to die. But I think there comes a point in our life, by God's grace, that we not only are ready to go, we are looking forward to going at some point in the dying process. I think that is God's faithfulness and kindness to us. So in these messages, he, um, words he gives to Timothy, I mean to Titus in these above verses, uh, he talks about the ruined state, he talks about the goodness of God, the hope of eternal life. And John Owen put it like this, eternal life is said to be promised of God before the world began that is, to the Son of God on behalf of his people. And then again, although the first formal promise was given after the fall, Genesis 3.15, uh, yet there was preparation of grace and eternal life in the counsels of God with his unchangeable purpose to communicate them to us that all of the fullness of God may be engaged in them. And so, you know, we read back in verse 2 of chapter 1, the hope of eternal life, which God beforehand, who never lies, promised before the ages began. There was a book, I think they used to have it on the book table at Covenant, and it was over there years and years and years ago. It was called Love Before Time. In Jeremiah 31, 3, the Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you to myself in loving kindness. And it's kind of mind-blowing to think that there was a never, never, ever a moment if we can speak of moments concerning God, there was never an occasion when God did not have his love for you 
and a determination to redeem you by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these things that, uh, that uh, Paul puts in these verses, he says here that they are trustworthy. And that is to say they are solid truth. Uh, to use some English idioms of our own day and age, we could say this, you can bank on it. Uh, you can take that to the bank. Uh, you can hang your hat on it. And someone who uses any of these phrases wants to assure you of the validity and certainty of what it is that they are saying. You're going through this, this sickness. I will be with you. You can bank on it. I will be with you to help you every step of the way. Uh, when uh, Johnny one time was in the hospital in Hattiesburg, and they didn't know what was wrong with him, and he was... Uh, um, possibly could, uh, could be cancer. Well, it wasn't. But David Justly, who is suffering now because of the stroke he had, got on the phone with me, and I said, I don't know that I can go through this. He said, I will go through it with you. That's a pastor. That's a pastor. I'm going to go through it with you. So uh, here, you can count on it. You can bank on it. That's what he's saying there. There are several other places in the New Testament where Paul uses that term, this trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And again, in each case, he uses it. He emphasizes the reliability of what it is that he is saying. In this case, again, it all looks forward or upward to the verses prior to this so that Titus can understand and be confident of and sure of the words of the gospel. That the gospel is undeniably true. And Titus is to embrace that. And Titus is to rest upon that. And so that he might have confidence. Do you have confidence in the gospel? Are you fully persuaded in the reality of God's word? And what it says to us? That you know without a doubt your sins are taken away. You know without a doubt you're bound for glory. And he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of perfection. That's Philippians verse 1. Chapter 1 and verse 6. He will begin a good work and you will complete it until the day of perfection. So the Apostle Paul had such confidence and such certainty of the gospel, he was willing to die for it. People don't die for things they don't believe in. But the Apostle Paul is willing to die for it. And as he goes through his defense before a king, this is in Acts chapter 26, listen to this. To this day, I have the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. This is again Apostle Paul giving his defense before the king. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to the people, our people, and to the Gentiles. As he was uh, uh, saying these things in his defense, Festus, was one of the men listening, said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking the truth and rational words, for the king knows about these things. For to him I spoke boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped the notice have been done in a corner, O King Agrippa. So there is, in Paul's defense, we learn this, that the gospel is historical. The reality of the gospel is presented to us in real time and real space. It is historical. And the gospel speaks of historical figures. Here he talks about the prophets and Moses. We go on to talk about the others. It is Abraham and King David and Solomon. All these figures who are a part of our history. 
And so it's not that there's no evidence whatsoever to support the teachings of Scripture. We know these things are true. We know that these things happen. Historical civilizations, historical cities. Jerusalem still can be visited. And so as Paul argues uh, before the king, he does so pointing out the historicity of the gospel and certainly Jesus Christ. The question is not, did Jesus exist? That's just terribly lame to question that. The question is, who was he? And what did he do? That's the question to ask concerning Christ. Not that he ever exists. We know historically that the Lord Jesus Christ did exist. The second thing you see in Paul's defense is that the gospel is rational. It is not make-believe. Uh, it is logical. It is together a tapestry of reasonableness. Uh, it is quite rational. It doesn't read as a myth. It is, stands apart and separate from Greek mythology. Because the things in Greek mythology, there's no historical evidence to support any of those things. And so it is that the, the way that it answers our greatest need of, the, of our race, which is, and so it is, is historical, it's rational, and it answers the greatest need that we have, which is that of our sin. How can we be, we be made right with God? Well, the solution to our problem of how a sinner can be right with a holy and just God is through his provision, which is through that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. If you reject God's Messiah, you reject God. If you reject God's Messiah, you reject God. And if you reject God, you reject the offer of eternal life. And if you reject the offer of eternal life, your future is quite bleak, quite frightening. We have to take seriously the threats of Scripture. We have to take seriously the judgment of God to come. It's not just in the Bible to entertain us. It's in the Bible to warn us, to take heed, and to be careful that we would take this offer of God and that God would say in the last days, well done, good and faithful servant. It is essential to believe the gospel, to embrace it by faith, it is the message of redemption, and it comes through Christ and only through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was, you know, I listened a lot to um, Alistair Begg when he preaches through these things. One thing that he said, he was listening to NPR, and a Muslim man came on the radio. And the Muslim man said this, my goal is to please my God. Your goal is to please your God. Let's just focus on that. We're all trying to do the same thing. So let's put these differences aside and all kind of be in fellowship one with another. We can't do that. As Christians, we cannot do that. The Bible teaches us clearly that Christ and Christ alone is the way of salvation. Jesus said, John 14, 16, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, which by we must be saved. It is through Christ and faith in his work. And that is how we are made right with God. And there is no other way. There's no work that we can do. There's no other individual that we can turn to. There is no other help whatsoever to be had except through Christ. And it is that we rest in that. To remember, that was one of the things that Paul emphasized. It is by his grace, 
He who loved us redeemed us. He sent his son to die for us on the cross of Calvary. So God is taking care of it. All that you need to go to glory has been taken care of by Christ. And our responsibility is to believe in him and to demonstrate that belief by obedience. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. That is how we show our love for Christ, resting in his accomplished work on our behalf. It is, then, that the gospel is juxtaposed to every other religion in the world. They are not many roads leading to heaven. One religion is not as good as another religion. They are mutually exclusive. And we can't put aside theological differences. We can't do that. You remember at the church in Galatia, there was someone teaching the Gentiles had come into the church. Well, the Gentiles were not culturally Jewish. And so the Judaizers, as they were called, were teaching the Gentiles. You've got to have the Old Testament sign applied to you. Jesus is good, but circumcision is essential. If you're going to be saved, then you must also be circumcised according to the Old Testament law. You remember what the Apostle Paul said. You are making shipwreck of your faith. Because when we say, is Christ plus anything, we are denying the efficacy of his sacrifice. And we fall into the mindset of thinking that you know, we must do something else besides trusting Jesus. No. It's trusting Christ and trusting Christ alone. Believing in and turning to and clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ as our hope in this world and in the world to come. So the choice is not either or. The choice is not both and. The choice is one. And that is the choice of choosing Christ. In the Old Testament, Joshua twenty four fifteen, it says this, and Joshua challenges the people of Israel, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve God, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So you're going to call on to be saved. Well, it is only the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love how Paul puts this. The saying is trustworthy. It is dependable. You can bank on it. You can bet on it. You can hang your life on it. It is a trustworthy saying. And we recognize the temptation of some churches today is to make the church relevant. The church is already relevant. We don't need to do anything or change anything to make the church relevant unless we're not being faithful to the proclamation of the gospel. And so the church might say, well, let's change our message. We want to see the church grow. We want to see people come in. So let's change our message. Let's be positive. Let's don't talk so much about sin. Talk too much about sin. You need to be positive. I think I'm quite positive, actually. Because if you don't talk about sin, you don't need a Savior. That's simply the fact. We're going to be like the people of old when Isaiah was preaching and the people of Israel said to him, Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Tell us pleasant things. And so there is in some churches then this idea of moving away from uh, the sincere word of Scripture in order that we might uh, accommodate people and make people feel comfortable by changing the message. Martin Lloyd-Jones is his biography. If you hadn't read it, I recommend it to you. He was meeting with his elders, and they were saying the church is not growing. 
I may have told you all this before. I don't apologize if I have because it's good. So he says to his elders, I tell you what, I will preach next Sunday in my bathing suit. And I'll preach every Sunday in my bathing suit. And it will bring people in. And I'm sure it would have brought people in had Martin Morton, uh, Dr. Jones done that. Well, Paul tells Titus, never give up, never surrender, insist upon the gospel. And so that as Titus went through his ministry, he was to teach and preach the word of God and teach and preach the word of God alone. Some people based upon uh, their, uh, some people base their understanding of God on a bad doctrine. But if you taught bad doctrine, uh, you are going to not really have the doctrines of grace. Or their own experience, and we evaluate God and uh, uh, formulate ideas of God by our own experience. It can't be based on that. What happens when this little baby who is suffering cancer, what, if, if your idea of God is only through that experience of what happens to the child who has cancer, who suffers from the chemotherapy and has to have a kidney transplant, if that's your only idea of God, where is it going to lead you? If you're honest, you're going to say this, it leads me to view God as one who's kind of cruel and mean. Because how can he possibly afflict a child a few months old with cancer? I don't like God very much. You can't evaluate God on the basis of your circumstances or experiences. You can't do that. We evaluate God on the basis of the Word of God, what Scripture teaches us about God. And we have to live our lives moment by moment with the reality of this. This world is passing away. It's not forever. And the things of this life are all passing away. But praise be to God who gives us victory through Christ as we read in the Scriptures. And so as we rest upon Him and we look beyond what we see and experience here to the reality of glory, that's comfort. And that's hope that is associated very, very clearly with that. Partial knowledge of Scripture or an improper understanding of Scripture will lead to a misinformed understanding of God. So the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is reliable, it is practical, it is beneficial. Look at those two things next week. But the Bible is entirely worthy of belief. If you look at the things that really influenced the world, I've been alive, one was Elvis Presley. I was very young when Elvis was around. I remember him as I got older. But you think about it, how he influenced music, how he influenced dress and hairstyles, a uh, very pronounced influence upon the society, upon the world, really. And then back in 1960s, early 1960s, you had these four guys from England that came over. Had a great influence on music, on hairstyle, and clothes. But of all the things in the world that influence us, there are many things in the world that influence us for no good reason. Do you agree that the poison, that culture in the world, in many cases, is poison to the Christian. We can't go through life blinded by the pollution that is in society all around us. And for example, 
I was talking to someone one time about abortion. They said, well, abortion is legal. The government has put its stamp of approval on it. Therefore, it must be okay. What do you learn? It's not. You learn in Scripture. You remember some time ago I joked that the archaeologists would be seen. Here's a male and a female here, one that was confused. That's going on now. They are telling archaeologists, you find something. There's got to be something here for you to see that will indicate this person is neither male nor female. I read that the other day. Well, let me ask you a question. If the church refuses to address these things, who will? If the church refuses to talk about abortion, who will? If the church refuses to say it is man and woman as God created them, who will? And the answer to that is, of course, no one will. So we read, if you saw the table talk for this month, it's called about light and salt, that we are to be light and salt in the world. So we learn here the value and the necessity of knowing the Bible, of learning God's Word. If you don't know the Lord's Word, if you ignore learning of the Scriptures, you're going to be like a ship at sea in storms without a rudder just tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine as we read in the Scriptures. And so we see the necessity to avail yourself to preaching. Here's the obligation of Timothy. He's to preach the Word. He is to say these things because they are true and they're the hope of salvation and they bring glory to God. And so Paul says you insist on these things. You insist on the gospel being there. And you don't change your message in order that you may appeal to a broad group of people and by ignoring the truths of the gospel. So it is necessary to avail ourselves of, of, of preaching on Sunday morning, Sunday evening. Not many churches have Sunday evening worship anymore. No church has a Wednesday night Bible study, I mean prayer time that I know of. Prayer meeting, as we called it when I was growing up. We have that once a month on the third Wednesday night of the month. Where God's, we get together and we pray for the church and we pray for personal needs that people have and so forth. And it is uh, the necessity we see of elders to teach the gospel. Timothy, uh, Titus is training elders. Titus is told here to preach and teach the words of God about Jesus Christ. That and that alone, he's to insist upon it, he says, as he goes through. That he's not to see that any, he's not to allow any other foreign strange doctrine to come into the church. And be taught. And there have been some goofy doctrines coming to the PCA in the past few years. Questioning and dealing with justification by faith and faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the elders, then, as you look at the elders in the church, what are they supposed to do? What are they supposed to teach? They're supposed to instruct. They're supposed to stand upon the word of God and give that word of God as it's needed to anybody in the church. That's the responsibility of the elder. Uh, to teach and to uh, instruct in the things of Christ. And so we should also recognize the Sunday school teacher's obligation. What a privilege it is to have children in a Sunday school class, to teach children. What a privilege and responsibility is placed upon parents to instruct their children in the things of the Lord. We are to see to it that we are being faithful. We are to insist this is the gospel that's taught and the gospel alone. Then uh, the uh, demands of God's word placed upon us uh, in uh, our lives to be faithful and obedient in the church.
So how do we judge a church that's faithful and true? Well, we can say we look at activities the church has. What are the activities the church does? These are something that would attract me there. What are the activities the church has? You can have all kind of activities and still have an unfaithful church. Uh, what about uh, uh, the, uh, the programs they have, the kind of things they have set in place for the good of the church? What about those things? You can have all kind of programs and have an unfaithful church. What is necessary is the faithful proclamation of the Scriptures. I'm not saying activities and programs are bad. I think they're good and helpful. But that's not the foundation of, that's not the bedrock of a faithful church. It is the faithful of faithfulness in doing what Paul tells Titus to do here in this text. To bring forth before the people, lay upon the people the necessity of faith in Christ. And to live a life that's pleasing to God. Because if that's missing, I don't care how charismatic the pastor is. I don't care how wonderful he is to spin his tales from the pulpit. Unless the gospel is there, unless the gospel is coming forward clearly and passionately, it's not a faithful church. So we are to be faithful as we carry out our ministry according to the word of our God. I ask you a question. Everybody wake up. Do you have a commitment, a goal to please Christ each day? Do you have a commitment to the integrity of preaching in the church and to avail yourself to opportunities to hear the word preached and to hear the word taught? Do the elders have a commitment to instruct people in the things of Christ, in the things of God, the learned and the unlearned? Both, as we learn here in this letter to Titus, a great letter to uh, the church. Do you have an unquenchable love for Christ? And therefore you love his church. And therefore you love to hear and see the word read and preached. Apart from the Bible, apart from God's word, we're lost. Apart from Christ, we are lost. If you're here today and you're not trusting in Jesus, I would encourage you to come to faith in Christ, to embrace the Savior. And if you're here today and you're a believer, rejoice in God's Word. Let's pray.